Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Happy New Year. Here we are again. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you could open up to 1 Corinthians 11. While you're doing that, I just would love to encourage you to take part uh, in the small groups as well as the Sunday school classes that will be starting up here just in about a week. Uh, on next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, we're starting a class, How to Grow in Christ. And as I was thinking about that class in particular, but also just Sunday school in general, I thought, there's really, I wouldn't be here right now unless I attended Sunday school. Um, my wife and I, when we think about what were some of the most influential things in our life, what really helped us to grow, and the answer many times was actually Sunday school. I love the pulpit ministry of church and preaching, and I think that God does amazing things through the preaching of his word. But there's a way in which Sunday school, it's, it's a little bit more practical sometimes. You can usually ask questions. You usually get a little bit more focused attention on certain topics like marriage, parenting, how to grow as a Christian, how to say no to sin, how to say yes to Christ. And really, God has used Sunday school ministry in our lives so much. Uh, and so I would just encourage each of you, maybe make that a resolution of 2024, that I want to be a part of being equipped through the Sunday school ministry of Valley Bible Church. So that class will start next Sunday morning. Small groups are, again, another way of doing that. And so, again, if you haven't signed up for one in the past or if you were kind of on the fence about one this next quarter, I'd really encourage you. Small groups are just a wonderful way to grow in Christ, to be with God's people, to encourage each other in the word, and to pray for one another. Well, if you're not there already, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've never read this particular chapter of Scripture, it has to do with head coverings. Uh, and so I entitled this message, Hold On to Your Hats. And it's a little tongue-in-cheek, because that will be the topic. He will talk about head coverings. But really, the reason I titled it that is because Paul's going to talk about two things that we don't usually like to think about. And so kind of hold on to your hats, because he's about to address some things that most of us tend to sort of avoid. And he's going to talk about two realities in this section. The first is this. We're all under authority. And the second is this. We all live in community. Both in the church and outside the church, we live in community with other people. So those two realities are going to translate into two responsibilities for us. Because we're all under authority, it means we all must submit to God's design. And because we all live in community, it means that we should show preference to one another. So those are the two topics that we're really going to focus on. Are we willing to submit, and are we willing to show preference? Submission and preference. Not popular topics in the 21st century. Not popular topics in the 1st century either. And certainly not popular in our culture today. You tell someone, you talk to someone about authority, they're like, authority? No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live it. You talk to people about showing preference to others. Preference? This is a me-first society. Look out for number one. If you don't like it, too bad. And yet these are the topics that Paul's going to address. And sadly... These are often unpopular notions, even in the church. The church often takes its cues from the world. 
We don't want to submit to authority. We don't want to show preference. But the church should be a place that embraces God's design. It should be a place that embraces God-given authority. And it should be a place where we prefer one another. So hold on to your hats. Here we go. All right, I want to read this text. We're in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Just sort of as a warning, there's a lot in this passage. Uh, Most commentators and pastors say this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret uh, in Scripture. Uh, So just to forewarn you, there's a lot here. We're going to have to try to move through uh, a lot of interesting issues here. But let's read it first. Verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaved. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, there you have it. Uh, Pretty much self-explanatory. Men are better than women. Ladies should wear hats. No pixie cuts for the gals. No long hair or man buns for the guys. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) There's a lot here. uh, A lot to get through, work through. So let's pray and then sort of work through this passage together. Father, we want to submit to your design. We should have no doubt that your design is better for us than our design would be. Anytime you tell us something in Scripture, it's for our good. You're never withholding anything good from us. You're always, a, you're always inviting us to live a life that is full and best according to your word. So, Lord, though these may be unpopular topics, certainly in the world and sometimes even in the church, I pray that you'd give us humility to receive your word. I pray that we would see the beauty of your design for men and women in the church and in the home. 
that these wouldn't be things that we rebel against or reject, but these would be things that we embrace and celebrate, trusting that you're infinitely wise and infinitely good in how you arranged men and women to relate to one another in the church and in the home. Father, I also pray that you'd help us, that we should be people that delight to show preference to one another, that we would model our Savior who did not come to be served but to serve, who denied himself even to the cross so that he could bring blessing to others. Again, may it be our delight to imitate him in all of these ways. So give us humility and give us wisdom as we come to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to think about is really to marvel at the freedom that we have in Christ. Marvel at the freedom you have in Christ. Before we kind of dive into some of the particulars here, I just want to kind of zoom out for a minute, because we've spent a little bit since we've been in 1 Corinthians. But really, 1 Corinthians is a church that was founded on freedom in Christ. In fact, the Corinthian slogan became, All things are lawful for me. And Paul never actually corrects that slogan. He actually never says, like, no, that's wrong. Because there are so many freedoms that we enjoy in Christ. And they're meant to be enjoyed. They're meant to be celebrated. They're true freedoms that should be enjoyed. And I want to just look at those, remind us of those freedoms before we dive into this passage. So think about this. We are free because we have a salvation that is by grace not by works. Paul came to an influential city, and he didn't go to the elite. He didn't go to the influencers of that city. He proclaimed the gospel to a bunch of nobodies. He says that not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you held influence over anything important in society's eyes. You're all just a bunch of sinners who had little hope for significance in this life and had no hope for anything in the next life except destruction. Their sin, like our sin, enslaved them to things that would never satisfy. And it earned for them, like it does for us, eternal punishment. And yet what, God, what did God do? He called them to salvation. And not like a call like, hey, why don't you come enjoy salvation? No, like you're running the wrong way, and he picked you up by the scruff of your neck, took you off the road that was leading to eternal destruction, and gave you eternal life. That's what he did for you. And how could God, now you think, how could God offer salvation to a people that rejected him? Well, that's what we just celebrated at Christmas. He sent his son. He sent his son who was truly God and truly man. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we never would have lived. And he died the death that we deserve to die so that God could offer us salvation. He didn't offer us salvation because we cleaned up our act. No, he offered us salvation even when we were sinners, even when we were his enemies. He offered it to us in his son. He demanded payment for our sin, and then he wrote the check himself through sending his son to the cross. And we're made right with God, not because of anything we've ever done, but solely on the basis of what Jesus did in our place. There's no good deed that is making you acceptable to God. 
And there's no bad deed that's going to make you not acceptable to God anymore because it never was and never will be dependent on what you do. It's always and only been dependent on what Christ did in your place. And that is freedom. Because I don't have to live every day wondering, like, did I do enough good things? Did I stay away from enough bad things? No, it's not about that. It's what Jesus did in your place, and so your eternity is now secure. And that's freedom. Freedom every single day of your life, and that has tremendous implications. A couple implications to point out. Now there's freedom because we have true equality with one another. All of us, men and women, are adopted into God's family and have full rights and privileges. In the Corinthian culture, much like ours, they tended to be misogynistic toward women. A woman in Rome could not vote or hold political office. Unless you think that was just in the Roman world, there's actually a Jewish prayer for men at the time that says, thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. But in Christ, men and women both receive full salvation. There are no second-class citizens in Christ's kingdom. Men and women are co-heirs with Christ of salvation. Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's true equality at the cross. Another freedom that we have is that we are loved and accepted by God. Truly loved and accepted by God. I love Tim Keller's famous kind of quote, or his summary of the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. When the Father looks at us, he sees his Son, and he loves us the same way that he loves his Son. Now, you might not believe that, but there's scripture for that. John 17, 23 says this, I in them and you in me, this is Jesus talking, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The Father loves you the same way he loves his Son. I mean, and there is freedom in that. Again, he's never going to love you any less than he does right now. And he's never going to love you any more than he does right now. You are loved by the God who made everything. You are fully accepted by the God who made everything. Even though you rejected him, he sent his son to pay for your sins so that he could love you the same way that he loves his son. Like Paul says in Romans 8.31, what are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? I mean, do you realize the freedom that you have in Christ? But now there's a, something that we still struggle with, and it's called sin in our lives, even as believers. And that sin wants to take true things and sort of warp them and manipulate them 
into us doing bad things with true statements. Paul says this in Galatians 5.13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that we have tremendous freedom in Christ. But that freedom can be misused. And we need to make sure that we're not using our freedom for selfish ends, but we use our freedom to love others. And that's what's really ha- going on in this passage and in the whole, really the whole book of 1 Corinthians. They're enjoying their freedom. They're celebrating their freedom. It probably started out good. Like, they realized, like, God accepts us. He loves us, not on the basis of what we do. This is amazing. We have true equality between men and women. This is incredible. But over the course of time, they start to misuse that freedom toward their own ends. And so that's really where we're picking up here in 1 Corinthians 11. So, next point. Understand the purpose of your freedom in Christ. And we're going to look at a couple different aspects here. First, you have freedom to embrace God's good design as it relates to authority and gender. Freedom to embrace God's good design. Like I said, there is true equality between men and women. Genesis 1.27 says male and female were created in the image of God. Galatians 3.28, men and women are co-heirs of salvation with Christ. 1 Peter 3.7, husbands and wives are co-heirs of the grace of life. Philippians 4.3, Paul talks about different women that are involved in his ministry. He calls them co-laborers with him in gospel ministry. Romans 16 mentions different women that are involved in ministry. He calls them fellow servants, fellow workers. So there is true equality between men and women in Christ. But now what's the temptation that is associated with that freedom of true equality? Well, the temptation is then to do away with all roles and distinctions between men and women, right? You take this theological truth that we are equal at the foot of the cross, and so then you start to say, like, well, then we must be equal in every other way, and let's do away with all distinctions between men and women in the church and in the home. That's really what Paul's getting at in this chapter. He's trying to correct that. No, you you are completely equal, But there are different roles for men and women. Look at verse 3. This is the principle. This is sort of the overarching principle for this whole section. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that God has a design for the way that men and women should relate in the church. That's what he's saying. Now notice in verse 3, who's under authority in verse 3? Everyone, right? This isn't just women are under authority. No, it says that Christ is the head of man, so man is under the authority of Christ. It says that a wife is under the authority of her husband, and even Christ himself is under the authority of God. So who's under authority? Everyone. Even Christ. Now I do think it's significant that Paul uses the word Christ there, 
He doesn't say like the son is submitted to God. He says Christ is submitted to God. Christ is his human title. He is the Messiah. In his earthly ministry, the man, Christ Jesus, was under the authority of God. And that's what Paul's saying. So even Christ in his earthly ministry was under authority. And so he's just going out of his way to say authority is not a bad thing. Authority is designed by God himself. And the man, Christ Jesus, even submitted to that authority, even though he was at the same time God. So this has nothing to do with value or superiority or even giftedness. Men are not superior to women. Men, you should say amen. <laughs> Men are not more valuable than women. There are women in this congregation who could preach much better sermons than a lot of the men in this congregation. It's not about ability. It's not about value. It's not about superiority. It's purely about this is the way that God designed it. And this is not actually a universal principle. Paul is not saying that man in general is the head of woman in general. There are only two contexts where women are called to submit to men. It's a wife to her husband, and it's women in the church to the qualified pastors and elders of the church. Outside of those two contexts, women are not called to submit to men. If I go up to a woman at Safeway who is not my wife and I say, hey, buy my groceries, she should slap me. And she should have, there's no reason she should listen to what I say. Because we are not in the context of a home and we are not in the context of the church gathered. So can a woman be a referee at an NFL game? Sure, no problem. Could a woman be the president of the United States? The way that men are running this country, I'd probably vote for her. There's only two contexts where Paul says women are submit to men. A wife to her husband and women to qualified leaders, elders, pastors in the church. That's it. And in both of those contexts, there are limits. A woman is never called to submit to sin. If her husband's asking her to sin or if a pastor was asking her to sin. A woman is also never called to submit to abuse. Abuse is sin. And so you do not submit in situations that would result in abuse. Also in both contexts, notice what kind of leadership is in view. Sacrificial servant leadership. How is a husband supposed to love his wife? The way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How is an elder supposed to shepherd the flock? Willingly, eagerly, humbly, and lovingly. God's design is that women should be well cared for by their pastors and elders and by their husbands at home. Now, sadly, there are many abuses to this, but we cannot allow the abuses to do away with God's good design. We should celebrate God's good design and embrace it because we trust him. So God has a design for his church. He's calling gift, calls and gifts qualified men to lead as pastors and elders. And in the Corinthian context, they had a physical cultural symbol of this relationship, and it was a head covering. So let's look at verses 4 through 6. 
It says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaved. So as we look at these two verses, it looks like Paul's saying, like, every woman at church should always have her head covered. And there was actually a time at Valley Bible Church, I believe it was even years, where women of this church wore hats. And we're going back. We're going back to the Bible. We're going to be biblical here. Ushers, please come forward with the hats for the women. They'll be passed out. Uh, Rhonda actually asked if she should wear a hat today just to sort of throw people off as to kind of what my view was uh, on this topic. But all this was, this was a cultural symbol of their submission to God's design, that they wore a head covering. What was the reason for this? Well, largely it was probably because it had pagan and sexual cultural connotation. And in, at the time, in pagan worship, men would typically have their heads covered. And so this is probably Paul's way of saying, we need to show that the worship that happens in our church is different than the worship that happens in the world. Men in the world have their heads covered. We are not going to have our heads covered as men in the church. As it relates to women, a head covering would be typical of a woman in that culture, and it would be a sign of modesty. And there were many sexual connotations for a woman that wore her hair flowing and maybe had bare shoulders in public. It would almost be that, you know, this is almost like a prostitute would be sort of the idea. If a woman had her hair uncovered, her shoulders uncovered, it had many sexual connotations. That's likely why Paul says that women should then have their heads covered. It'd be like coming to church in a tube top, a miniskirt, and four-inch heels. It's like, what, what are we trying to, you know, direct attention to here, right? The attention in church should be on who? The Lord. And so Paul's just trying to minimize distractions and show that the church embraces God's design. Now, in our culture, hair length doesn't communicate those same things. In our culture, head coverings don't communicate those same things. And so that's why we feel like we're not under obligation to follow this exact command in this exact way. Okay? Paul continues, though. He gives some theological reasoning in verses 7 through 9 as to, again, just celebrating God's design for men and women in the church. He says in verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So Paul's just pointing out that there's an order and a design in God's creation. He says that man is the image and glory of God, that he was fully and directly created by God. He says woman is the glory of man, and by saying that, he doesn't mean that woman is not the, you know, the image and glory of God. It's just that she was created from man, right? He took the rib from Adam, and he made Eve. So both men and women are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 makes that perfectly clear. So that's not, Paul's not saying that women are not made in the image of God. The illustration he's giving is sort of just to celebrate the uniqueness in the way that God designed men and women in creation. You could kind of think of it this way. One commentator gave this illustration. You could say you have a tree, 
and the apple is the glory of the tree. Now, if you were to make an apple crisp, you could say the apple crisp is the glory of the apple. So the point is not to say that one's better than another. It's just to show that there was this unique way that these things came about. That's all Paul's saying. Paul's saying there's a design in creation that man came and Eve was created for the man. Now, this is not just, again, it's hard because we think about, is this true of men and women in general? But really, we have to remember, who are the man and the woman that he's talking about in this passage? Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are not just man and woman in general. They are the first husband and wife. They are also, in a sense, the first kind of church, if you want to sort of think of it that way. They're the first believing community. So God was establishing in them not truths about men and women just sort of universally, as much as men and women in relationship to one another as husband and wife, and men and women in a spiritual context in relationship to God. And I think you see that in Genesis chapter 3 when you look at the temptation that Satan did. Who did Satan tempt? Eve. So right from the get-go, Satan comes in and he says, I want to disrupt the design. Adam is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. He's supposed to be sort of the spiritual leader of the church. But who does Satan go to? He goes to the woman. And the nature of that temptation is you don't need him. You, are, you should be autonomous. You should not submit to his leadership. It doesn't matter what he says. You do what you want to do. You see that? And now some of us think like, oh, if Adam had been there, what would he have said? Adam was there. He was right there. And he relinquished his leadership. He didn't, never stepped in. He never said, Eve, what are you doing? You can't do this. God has told us that if we eat of it, we'll die. Stop. I love you. I want to protect you. He never did that. He just sat there and let Eve be tempted by Satan. He relinquished his God-given role to protect his wife and lead her. And what does Eve do? She steps outside of God's design, and what happens? Sin enters the world. But interestingly, who does God talk to about it? Who sinned first? Eve. Who does God talk to? Adam. Why? Because he's the spiritual leader. It was his responsibility. And he failed. So God goes to Adam. So that's what Paul's kind of talking about all of these things. To show that there's a, a relationship, a design in the home. That a husband should lovingly lead his wife. Their design in the church, that qualified men should lovingly lead the church. And that's what Paul's getting at. Paul gives another additional reason why men and women are in this relationship in the church and in the home in verse 10. He says, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So his additional reason is because of the angels. Duh! We all know what that means, right? It's like, no, no one really knows what exactly that means or what Paul has in mind when he says, like, we do this because of the angels. The most likely explanation is we do this because angels are present in our worship service. That angels are involved in the worship of God. That's what the angels are doing for all time, right? We read in Revelation, they're always worshiping. 
So when they see the worship of a church, they want it to mirror the worship that they're giving to God. And if men and women are not respecting the roles and in in celebrating the roles in God's design in the church, that the angels will be upset with this, I think, is the, is the idea. And so even because of the angels, we want to do this. So, kind of summing up this section, the church should be a place where we celebrate God's design for men and women in the church and in the home. And we should embrace the differences between the sexes, not try to do away with the differences between the sexes. Now, Paul wants to make sure that everyone knows that men and women are equal. So that's why he says in verse 11, he gives just another reminder about equality. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, like Eve was maybe in Genesis 3, but man is also not independent of woman. Verse 12, For as woman was made from man, back in Genesis chapter 2, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. So Paul just wants to make it clear, like, men and women are equal. Like, men can't go around saying, well, woman was created from, e like from man. Well, then the woman's come back and be, yeah, and every other man subsequently has been created from woman, <laughs> right? He's like, there is true equality between the sexes. It's also interesting, don't miss in verses 4 and 5, that men and women in this passage, they're actually doing the same activity in church. Look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies. Who's doing the praying and the prophesying in verse 4? Men. Look at verse 5. Every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. Who's doing the praying and prophesying in verse 5? Women. Look at verse 10. That is why a wife or a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head when she prays or prophesies. He's saying women have the authority to pray and prophesy in the church, just like the men. It's just when women do it, they have to have a head covering. That's what he's saying. So there's not even a differentiation right here about the tasks that men and women are doing in church. Again, this passage, Paul's not concerned about who's doing what in church. There are other passages that do relate to that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, for example, talks about limitations in ministry, where Paul says women are not to teach or to exercise authority over men at the gathered church. So what Paul's saying in that section in 1 Timothy 2 is that women should not be pastors and elders. Women should not teach men if they're present at the gathered assembly of the church. So there are limitations. But Paul, in this passage, he's not even thinking about the limitations. He's just talking about all the tremendous equality that men and women have, even in the church gathered. Other than pastoring and preaching and teaching, just about anything else, as far as it relates to worship service, is fair game for men and for women. Praying in a service, he mentions that explicitly. Teaching children, being an usher, being a greeter, leading and singing, reading scripture, I think men and women are both welcome to do all of those things. Paul even says that even prophesying, men and women are welcome to do that. Now here I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer that prophecy is not preaching. Prophecy was a unique gift to the church in Corinth at that time. Prophecy is I give direct new revelation from God. 
God speaks to me directly, and I give it out to the church. That was happening in Corinth. And Paul says, men and women, if God's giving you direct revelation, you can prophesy in church. But that's different than preaching. Preaching is not new revelation. Preaching is proclaiming God's existing revelation and calling people to live in light of it. And Paul says that ministry is reserved for men. Again, prophecy at, was a gift to the Corinthian church at that time, but it's not a gift that exists today in that same way. There are no prophets today. And what often passes as prophecy today is little more than like fortune-telling and tarot cards. You never find in Scripture, like, let me go to the prophet so he can tell me who I'm going to marry. Or let me go to the prophet to see how it's gonna, this situation is going to turn out. Or let me go to the prophet to decide what college I should go to or what job I should get. That's never been what prophecy is about. And yet that's what passes for prophecy many times today. But we believe that that gift ceased when the New Testament was completed. That God needs no new direct revelation. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. But circling back to the point, again, we should embrace God's design for men and women in the church. He has designed roles for men and women in the church. And he wants us to celebrate the differences between men and women, not obliterate them. Now, there's one other aspect to consider, I think, that Paul brings up in verses 13 to 15, and it's this, that when we think about our freedom, when we think about who we are as men and women, we also need to remember that we exist in a community. We exist in a church community among one another, and we exist in a community with those outside the church as well. And so again, when people look at you inside the church, and when people look at you from outside the church, they should know this is a man, this is a woman, and these are people that celebrate the differences between men and women. Look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So this is that other aspect. We talked about that we're under authority. Nobody likes to think about that because no one wants to submit to one another. This is the aspect of we're all in community. And we should be showing preference for one another, not stumbling one another. Again, it's this freedom that we are truly loved and accepted by God. The God who made everything loves and accepts us, and there is so much freedom in that. But there's a way in which we can twist that freedom to say, like, God loves me, so who cares what you think? Or I'm accepted by God, so if you don't like what I do, tough. I'm still loved and accepted by God. And I think that's what was happening again in this church, is that they're saying, like, I don't care what people think, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to look the way that I want, and who are you to tell me otherwise? And this is Paul's reminder, like, no, we exist in community, and we need to show preference to one another. We have an inside witness to one another, and we don't want to stumble each other. So in our church, men should look like men, and women should look like women. Now, again, in our culture, hair length generally 
doesn't correspond to whether we think someone is masculine or feminine, right? You have Aquaman and his long flowing hair. Nobody's thinking like that man looks like a woman, right? He's very masculine looking, right? Or you have, I don't know, like Julia Roberts in Hook, you know, she's got like the little Tinkerbell pixie haircut, and no one thinks, wow, that looks like a man, right? It's, to us, it looks feminine, you know, even her to have short hair, men to have long hair can still look masculine. The point is not like, should our hair length be long or short? The point is, men should look like men, and women should look like women, because we don't want to stumble each other in the church. And that's also true of our witness outside the church. We don't want the church to look in and say, like, they seem really confused about what a man is and what a woman is. We want the outside to look into our church and think, these are people that celebrate the differences between men and women. They're not trying to blur the lines. They're not trying to, you know, erase every difference. They're celebrating those differences. Right? Culture wants to do away with all distinctions between men and women in the name of freedom and equality. Rhonda and I used to watch Project Runway. I don't know if that makes me less masculine. Uh, but we would watch the show, and in the early seasons of Project Runway, the designers themselves were always like super eccentric out there. They kind of dressed all weird and funky. But it was interesting, the clothes they designed, they designed feminine clothes for women and masculine clothes for men, if you watch like the early seasons of that show. If you watch current seasons of that show, they're designing, they have women's clothes on men. They have men's clothes on women. And by and large, a lot of them are just trying to do androgynous clothing. Like, let's just cover up all distinctions between man and woman. Let's make everybody sort of look the same. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true freedom. That's not true equality. Like, you will never be free if, you're a, if God created you as a man and you think you need to be a woman. You will never be free if God created you as a woman and you think you're supposed to be a man. That's not going to be freedom. That's going to be bondage for the rest of your life and for all eternity if you continue to embrace that idea. You will only be free when you embrace who God actually made you to be, man or woman. And that is what the church should be a picture of. The church should be a picture of these are people that celebrate and embrace the differences between men and women. They have no problem with qualified men being the leaders of the church. They have no problem with men leading their wives the way that Christ loved and shepherded his church. We should be examples of those things. Embrace those things, not reject them. Now I want to end actually by circling back to verse 1 of this chapter where Paul says, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. And I think it's so helpful to see that Christ is our example in all of these things. He's our example in one in authority. He's a, our example as one under authority. And he's our example as one who showed preference to others above seeking his own needs and desires. I mean, think about it. Christ is the greatest example to elders and to husbands of what leadership looks like. What does Christ's leadership of his bride look like? It's sacrificial. It's self-giving. It doesn't seek its own interest, but the interest of others. 
Could the women of this church say that of their pastors and elders, that that's the kind of leadership that they have? Could the wives of this church say that about their husbands, that they have Christ-like husbands who love them and lead them this way? On the flip side, Christ is our example in submission as well. For everyone, not just for women, but for men and women, we are all under authority. To Christ, ultimately, but even in relationship. So how did Christ relate to God during his earthly ministry? He gave joyful, glad submission. Not begrudging, not forced, he was delighted to follow the directives of his father. Now you might say, well, Christ did that for God. God's a perfect leader. It's like, I have to do that for some bozo husband or, you know, some pastors of the church that they don't know what they're doing. But no, this is what he's called us to, to submit to Christ in his leadership and the design of his leadership in the home and in the church. And don't think that submission was easy for Christ. What did he say in the garden? Father, take this cup from me. I don't want this. As a man, right? As a man, he was saying these things. I don't want this. I don't want the pain and agony of the cross and separation from you. But what did he say at the end? Not my will, but yours be done. And may that be all of our attitude, that we have glad submission to God and to the leaders that he puts over us. But don't miss also that Christ is also the example of how we relate to one another. What was Christ's earthly ministry like? He came to serve and not be served. He did not seek his own interests. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and served even to the point of death, even death on a cross, not for his own sake, but for our sake. And so could all of us say of one another that we prefer and serve one another the way that Christ did for us? Christ is our example. And may we follow him in 2024. May the husbands of this church follow Christ in their, how they lead and love their wives. May the pastors and elders of this church lead this church the way that Christ leads his bride. And may all of us model Christ in how we relate to one another how we love each other, how we serve each other, and may God do great things in 2024. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you have a wonderful design for the church. Christ is the head. You call and gift qualified men to be shepherds under Christ. You have a wonderful design for the home. That husbands are to lead their wives and love them the way that Christ loves his church. Father, there's many ways in which our culture obviously rejects these things. They don't ever see authority as a good design. And they don't see preferring one another as something to strive after. May that not be true of us. May we be a people that love God-given authority. That rejoice at your design that embrace it, that we follow it in our homes, and that we follow it in our church. You're going to bless it, and it's actually what's best for us. So help us to embrace your design. May all of us look to Christ as our example. He's the example of the perfect leader. 
He's the example of the one perfectly in submission to God. And he's the example of one who perfectly sought the needs of others, even above his own. May this church become more and more like Christ. And may we celebrate the differences between men and women. And may we be a wonderful picture to each other and to the outside world of rejoicing in your good design. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.